0: We talked about this maybe six months ago uh, about what we wanted to do, and I I got really excited in putting together some thoughts for this topic, uh, largely because I can imagine what people's general uh, impression is of being able to come into a topic of a weekend like evangelism, Uh, but we'll talk about that as we move along. But I'll say this, uh, there's a whole lot, this this job that Brian was referring to uh, is new for me. I did something for 17 years and for the last year and a half not been doing it. And so being able to come here makes me feel human again. Uh, so thanks for uh, letting me hang out a little bit. And I would love to be able to um, uh, visit with you tomorrow in between sessions and tonight for Q&A and whatever else. Uh, and in Q&A, let's just let someone be the one who breaks the ice on the awkward silence. We say, well, let's have time for questions. And we all look at each other nervously saying, just whatever you do, don't make eye contact with them. So someone right now, be thinking of some random, ridiculous question. We'll play. Uh, stump the chump with the, uh, the Bible answer man uh, after we're done. All right, Ephesians chapter 3, I want to read for you a passage that uh, you may not associate with the idea of evangelism, but I hope after we're done here you will. Uh, this is uh, from the Apostle Paul who says, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I I realize that it's a bit cliche for... um, Uh, minister types like myself, to use their children as illustrations. Someone told me, you know, don't ever use your children as illustrations. But it occurred to me after having a child that what other good purpose could they serve except to provide me (laughs) for ample illustrations. Um, I'm kidding about that. I love my children. They're here with me this weekend. Um, But I remember when Ginger and I found out that we were expecting my first child, Anna Grace, who also is here with us uh, tonight, uh, 13 and a half years old, and I remember when she came home and said, we're expecting a child. Obviously, there's incredible, there's incredible things that go through your head when you experience that. Uh, uh, shock, awe, amazement, but nothing compared to the unbelievable urge to go tell everybody, to which my wife told me, well, we're not going to tell everybody yet because I really want to surprise our parents. Uh, Because it was, you know, it was in November and December, and we thought about going to our parents and doing some cutesy thing where you videotape their response and freak out and put it on America's Funniest Videos and win the $10,000, which never happened. But I remember how torturous it was to try to wait to tell everybody that Ginger and I were going to have a child. Um... And the torture struck me so much because I began to notice that that kind of thing happened over and over and over again whenever there was good news. This is my really only premise for the entire weekend. could have saved yourself a trip just by getting this one sentence. (laughs) There is something about good news that has to get out of you. Or it's not really that good a news. Or it's not something that you're really truly enjoying. Or we've not really seen how good it is. All good news wants to get out. And I want to talk about this this entire weekend as a heading under which we want to talk about evangelism. Look, in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is taken on the purpose uh, of trying to explain why he's there. What is it that God has called me to do, and what is it that God is doing in the universe? And he comes along and describes it. And so, therefore, I think what the last half of Ephesians chapter 3 is, is it's a discussion about the essentials of evangelism. Paul is talking about himself as one who understands why he has a mission and what's really driving him into it. And so, for us, it's a way of seeing and understanding what our role is and wanted to bear witness to that truth. (laughs) Now, look, I want to take just a moment to say it really is okay if right now when anyone even says the word evangelism, your defenses go up. Uh, My guess is is there's a group full of religious people here, some of you anyway, who probably associate the very idea of evangelism with various levels of psychological guilt uh, that have been associated with this, for you not being as responsible as you should be for telling more people about Jesus. That's fair to say, if you grew up in any sort of context in which I did. Um, Others of you would not consider yourself in that camp at all. You're more of the irreligious type. You're still on the outside observing Christianity. And it very well may be that you have been the unfortunate um, uh, target of someone else's efforts to evangelize you. That is, someone has come and tried to sort of inflict this upon you. And for that reason, you would rather, you know, die than hear a lecture on this. Well, I apologize for you having come on this trip. (laughs) But look, I think that this passage has something for both of you. Number one, Paul will never say that the reason why we share this good news is because of guilt. No one should ever be motivated by that. That's not what motivated Paul. But secondly, I also want to say that you very well may be justified in the fact that if someone had the intentions to come along and save you, your revulsion to that kind of thing may actually be appropriate. So I want to own the fact that your uh, uh, embarrassment by that and your annoyance at it actually might be something that was a proper response to it, something that we'll get to a good bit tomorrow afternoon as we finish out. Look, I simply want to mention to you three things that I think are essential to understanding if we're going to look at the idea of evangelism. I want to talk about big Picture tonight about what we have to get our minds around before we ever start to talk about this topic. And the first one Paul talks about in his mission motivation. That's my first one mission motivation. They both start with the letter M, which are the preacher tricks they teach you at seminary. You start stuff with the same letter. Okay, it was a little bit funnier than that, but I'll, I'll give it to you because <laughs> it's the first one I have. Um, Did you notice how many times, I got them circled, about four times in the passage that we read, Paul keeps using this word mystery. There's been this mystery, there's been this thing. A great translation for that word is the word secret. Paul is basically saying throughout the book of Ephesians that there is a secret that was kept hidden, or at least in the form of types and shadows, until all of a sudden this guy comes along from Nazareth named Jesus. And suddenly, when he shows up, God is finally revealing to the world exactly what he's up to. Now, by the way, I wish we could spend a whole lot more time on this. Maybe this is another weekend from the time. What is God doing in the universe? The answer is he is bringing all things together under the head of his son. He's reuniting everything that has split apart because of our sin, he's bringing it all back together again. The purposes of God are to bring down walls. A whole lot more about that tomorrow afternoon. But hold that thought. But here's, here's what I want you to understand. Paul keeps talking about this fact that there was a mystery. There's this thing. And now I get to tell about the mystery. I'm the, the purpose of my life is to go out and to share this out. And what possible difference would that make? Well, instead of going into the idea of mystery, I want you to notice what it means When you have a way of looking at the world where there actually is a plan to the universe. And again, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. I'm not trying to say that this is uh, 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 not obvious to some of you. Of course, there's a plan. God has a plan. But I don't think we oftentimes realize just how powerful that is to acknowledge that human history is going somewhere. I would say even better that human history is a story. A number of years ago, it was my sort of entrance into uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's um, uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy and then every other thing that I could get my hands on afterwards that began to really introduce to me the power of the idea of a story. And what happens to you when you realize that human history is itself. A story that's going somewhere. Have you noticed yet the power of stories to move you, to change you, to work on you? Look, when you get around friends, my guess is one of the things that you love to do is to start to recount the things that have happened to you since you came to college. I guarantee you seniors have at least one time this year said, oh my word, do you remember that when we were in freshman year in the dorm together? uh, And you go off and you tell the story. There is every now and then when an inner old Miss sorority girl will come up out of me because of my 12 years, and most of you with great relish will delight in the imitation that it will sometimes come out of that. Bear with me. You'll get used to it. But you love to tell those old stories. We love to laugh at them. And it's funny. That's the thing that kind of locks us in. Uh, I, I love being able to, um, whenever I start to see everybody kind of wander, you know, it's kind of late, going, wow, sermon, 8 o'clock at night on a Friday, really what I wanted to do. And you start to wander. I know exactly how to get you back. All I got to do is say, you know it reminds me of a story? And suddenly everybody kind of goes, <laughs> and perks up. Have you ever thought how strange it is that you can sit in a tiny dark room, relatively tiny dark room, and watch a movie and go through a gamut of emotions when a skilled movie maker or screenwriter put something together with all the elements of lighting and sound and cinematography to where you can walk out of a theater bawling, crying. It's happened to me multiple times. And we ought to stop and think to ourselves, what just happened? The answer is you came under the spell of the power of any story. Any story moves us. It grips us. And what Tolkien, who was himself a Christian, was the first one introduced to me? Was this idea: Is what if, if that is baked into your very DNA? That there is something about you that needs a story, that needs to know that there's a story, to believe that there is something, even when it's just in our imaginations, that actually could compel you into your future. Um, when I was uh, again a, a new, relatively new father. We had uh, two girls very close together. It's the second illustration they made it in tonight. Bless their hearts. Good they're not here. But they're only 16 months apart, my, uh, my uh, two children. That was, not a, <laughs> that was not a planned event, but it happened that way. And one of the great things about having siblings... <laughs> Everybody's like, what is he talking about? Never mind. Um, one of the great things about having siblings that close together is they never really knew a time when they weren't with each other. I don't know if you, if you girls have sisters like that, but... Uh, Anna Grace and Caroline are best friends. It's delightful to see them play together, but I remember at their youngest of ages how their mother would come home with the latest princess gown. And I was shocked that you could actually go and purchase, you know, a relatively authentic-looking Cinderella gown, you know, know, for someone that's four years old. And you would be amazed at the transformation my daughters would have when they would slip these dresses on um, and would, you know, sort of come you know, coming through the dent to the living room. <laughs> Immediately they knew that they were in a fairy tale, and they would imagine princes, and they would both dress up. I remember the time, this was the to of death. This is where your preacher's kids hate their para- uh, preacher fathers. I remember one time when they insisted on going with me to the barber shop, but they wouldn't go unless they could come in their princess gowns. And my barber still says, how are those two princesses? Because they came into the barber shop, it's like, no, 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 no. Floating through, imagining these things. At four years old, my children understood the power of story. And my guess is it still has power over you. Do you ever find your mind day your mind drifting off into stories about yourself? I used to love to ask students at Ole Miss at this time: What is your story about? What kind of story are you believing about yourself? talked to a lot of people over the years whose life story at that moment was a great tragedy. Some that it was a great comedy bouncing through life. For others it was an action adventure. But at all times you are seeing your life through the version of some narrative. There was an elderly lady who took us out to lunch after a church one day when I was in seminary. Wonderful old ladies that will take seminary students out to lunch. And I remember this wonderful sort of Highfalutin, Northeast Jacksonite, look at me and say, and so lay us, lay us. Two syllables in lay us. Lay us. Tell me, what is your story? What is your story? What a great question. What is your story that you're believing right now about the universe? Because Paul says that God is telling a story. That there is a narrative to human history that oftentimes is very difficult to see and unfortunately is oftentimes clouded by alternative versions. And for the moment here, since I'm assuming that I have a religious crowd, there are alternative versions of that story that are being told even by religious people. I grew up believing that the narrative of human history was leading towards a great cataclysm that would pull up out of the Middle East and create a worldwide Armageddon in which all things would go and we would all get tattoos that said 666 on them. Never mind, we're not going to talk about the end times tonight. But I'll say this that worked on me as a version of my history of believing that was where things were going. Paul says, I want you to know what it's really about. It's about a mystery, it's about a story, it's about a secret that God is telling that I've come down to fix the universe. What is your story? So a mission motivation, that's Paul's first sort of thing that you have to get if you're going to understand his view of evangelism. Secondly, though, he says you have to have a humble confidence, a humble confidence. Look there at verse uh, 8. People get kind of freaked out about what he says there in verse 8, where he says, to me, though I am the, le- the very least of all the saints, that little very least is kind of a weak translation of what the word actually says, what he actually says is, is I am the least of the least. In other words, Paul kind of butchers the, uh, uh, the English language. Not that he spoke or talked in English, but he butchers the word because he, technically you can't be least than the least now, can you? And so Paul actually invents a word. It's a word that we really don't have a lot of versions of in other ancient Near Eastern literature. In other words, Paul is saying that if you go out and look at all the least people out there, and you judge them on the basis of their goodness, you will find that I'm the least of all those least. Fascinating. The Apostle Paul, author of two-thirds of the books of the New Testament, uh, the guy whose, I don't know, shadow passed over sick people and would would heal them. uh, Not sure I'd call him the least of the least. But then all of a sudden, not but two or three verses later, in verse 12, you see what he says? He starts talking about Christians having boldness and confidence. Okay, Paul, uh, weirdo, um, how do you have both? <laughs> On the one hand, he's saying, I'm the least of all the least. And for a lot of us, we think, that's pathological. Why? Because Paul has a bad self-image. But then, a few minutes later, he says, but I'm the be-. He says, we can have boldness and confidence in leading this life. And we say, oh, that's pathological too, because now you're cocky because you think you figured life out. How is it that someone can be both bold and confident on the one hand, but humble and low on the other? You ever thought about how hard that is? Have you ever noticed that you're humble? (laughs) You know what? Honestly, I I think that really describes me. I'm a very humble person. (laughs) Oh, see, and then you're done, right? Because you just messed it up. How can I be humble and confident at the same time? Look, I think whenever Christians begin to grapple with this kind of question, they get at the root of what is, what we struggle with the most in our own self-image and the brand new self-image that only the Christian gospel can give. Christians struggle with both false humility and false pride. You ever notice this? You know, on the one hand, we don't want to come right out and tell people, you know, about our recent spiritual accomplishments although we'll find some way to work it in the conversation. I'm telling you, since the new year, I've read my Bible every day. Y'all, it's been such a blessing. Well, it's not about the blessing, is it? It's more about you letting us know what you've done every day, isn't it? But on the other hand, we cannot stand it when people don't notice us. We find a way to draw attention to ourselves. Look, y'all, what Paul is saying is, is that we have in Christ... Both humility and confidence. My question for you tonight is, how? Because once you answer that question, you'll have the heart of the gospel. And I'm not trying to overstate things. You can only have humility and confidence together under a very interesting set of circumstances. And that is, if Jesus came along with a very unique message that once for all told you that all of your efforts of posturing whether they be spiritual and private or public and obvious, are absolutely a waste of time. Because under his scrutiny, as the judge of all things and all motives and everything you've ever done, no one makes it. We are all humbled in the face of that holiness. But here's the crazy part. In the story that God is telling, This man came along, though he came with judgment on his lips, he then turns the gun on himself and says that I am going to take the place of all of those people for whom sin has destroyed. So in the very same moment that we own and have admit, admit to our brokenness, he comes and fills us up with his fullness. Humble confidence. The further you go into the gospel, the more you see of yourself that you don't like. Some of you have not yet understood this. But the further you go in the gospel, the more you see how much Jesus has compensated for all of those failures, past, present, and future. And so the more solid ground that you're actually on. Only in the Christian gospel do you have humble confidence. Look, and I think this is one of the reasons why we are so bad at evangelism. There are people that are running away from Christianity because of these silly Christian lingo and insecure ramblings about how much our life is better since Christ came our way. And we asked him into our hearts. More about that tomorrow. But look, becoming a genuine person, someone who isn't crippled by self-doubt on the one hand, or, by self-congratulations on the other, become that, by the grace of God, in the gospel, and maybe just maybe people will begin to see authenticity for the first time. And then they'll want to hear what you have to say. The key to evangelism is a humble confidence, a mission mentality, a humble confidence, thirdly and finally, corporate thinking. Paul says there's got to be corporate thinking when you come to look at evangelism. (laughs) Now look, of all the things that I said that is like counterintuitive to you, this one's the biggest, and you don't even know it yet, but it is a huge piece of the puzzle. In verse 9 and 10, Paul says that God has chosen to unveil this cosmic plan. Did you catch the phrase? Look back at it; it's worth uh, seeing one more time. In verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now, it really is okay if some of you are going, (laughs) you ain't talking about my church. You never been to my church. If you want to talk about a place that's got problems, that's my church. The word Paul is using there, as you probably very well know, is the word ecclesia. It means the called out ones. And I've already, what what I try to get across to students all the time is the vast majority of the times that Paul uses this word, the New Testament. He's not referring to what we oftentimes think of as the church. We're like, well... By church, we don't mean like that building, you know, here's the building, here's the people. That's not what he's talking about. He's just kind of talking about, you know, like all us Christians in the world. Actually, no, he's not. He is talking about, here's the church, here's the people. He's talking about a place. He's talking about a place with elders, people that are spiritually over you, that he even uses the word submit to. He's talking about people where, where there are deacons that oversee the work of the church, where there's like meeting times for public worship, where there's like a nursery, um, where there's like the sacraments that get served. Somehow nursery and sacraments made that into the same uh, sentence there. Um, and Paul says that is the primary place where this story is going to be told. And it's going to come through that. If you want to watch where human history is going to unfold, watch the church. And according to the statistical data, I always love to say that, like I've been studying statistical data, you know, for a year to prepare for this. According to the statistical data, I read an article, that's what that means. (laughs) Your generation is the first one, is one of the loudest in the last 50 to say, we are done with church. We're okay with religion and spirituality in general. Cool with people kind of doing even the Jesus thing. If you're down with that, knock yourself out. But the church, what a waste of time. How many times, how many churches that have been planted in your lifetime can you remember that actually even had the word church in it? Had a friend of mine call me like two weeks ago and say, I've joined a new church. Really, what's it called? He says, it's called liquid. I said, liquid. (laughs) Fantastic. You know, it's the journey. It's a, uh, it's it's a. Uh, who knows the names that we've heard about? And I'm not knocking the names, but it's like we're allergic to the very idea of church. And yet, Paul says that this is the way in which God is going to work out His purposes. And look, y'all, I want you to really feel this because what he says is, remember, <laughs> you're gonna love this. The purpose that God is working out through the church. Is the inclusion of outsiders. Okay, that's one that's like worth writing down. Church equals inclusion of outsiders. The reason why that's worth writing down is because Paul is saying God is bringing, is taking this thing that used to be sort of uh, um, uh, attached most primarily to an ethnicity known as Judaism, Jewish religion, Christianity, but. Jesus having come along, it is broken out of that to where being an ethnic Jewish person no longer gives you any covenant significance before God. It is only the manner in which you relate to Jesus Christ. That gives you significance with God now. And what that means then is there's an instinct in this body that Jesus is producing that will go out and find people who considered themselves to be on the outside and get to come on the inside. The called out ones and the called into ones. See, this is why Jesus gets, oh, upset when we don't unconditionally bring those around us into membership in our churches who name Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He doesn't like that. The divisions that happen in the body for foolish reasons um, displease Him because that's the nature of it. Look, And for this reason, if your evangelism does not include something about the church, we've missed something huge. Look, you can't do it all. If you are the primary motivation for evangelism in someone's life, what are you going to produce in them? You're going to produce you. And God forbid. Look. What God is saying is, is when we start to put together what it means to evangelize the world, something about that has got to do with the formation of these local bodies that have real structure and real organization and a real organism sense to them. So that honestly, in order to really evangelize someone, you've got to have a pastor to teach them. You need to have a single mom who can teach them about patience. You need to have a former drug addict who can show them about the power to overcome sin. You need to have uh, children to show them the real root of joy, etc. You can't possibly hope to be for someone what it takes in order for them to be, immature, to be mature. I hear a lot of talk among college students about so-and-so that, that, that is discipling me, and I'm discipling someone else. Fine, that's absolutely appropriate. But it was not the New Testament pattern for the primary source of your growth to be one person. It is a body. That's why your campus minister loves to talk to you about what's going on with your roommates, what's going on with your friends, what's going on in your sphere of influences. Spheres of influence. Why? Because it's in those relationships where God is unpacking His entire life plan. Look, y'all, By the time Paul ends this entire thing, when he finally gets to where it's all building up on him, he comes and gives us one of the most tender sort of views of himself because he's saying there that God has given me... Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the least of the least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That was the ESV. The ESV's attempt at translating a very hard-to-translate word. Paul literally, the word literally translated means not to be tracked out. Uh, there's a great quote from a guy who did a commentator on this who said that translators and commentators have competed with one another to try to find the dynamic equivalent of this word in English. The riches of Christ, they say, are unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, and incalculable. What is certain, listen to this, you missed everything tonight, don't miss this. What is certain about the wealth Christ has and gives is that we shall never come to an end of it. Paul was convinced that coming to Jesus was the opposite of impoverishment, but it was eternally enriching, that it never stopped being fascinating, and I realize that the second that we start to set those kinds of ideas in front of people that have come from the Christ-haunted South and have lived with religiosity all your life, your first tendency is to say to yourself, I know where he's going with this, I know where he's going with this. He's going to say that I need to be more excited about who Jesus is and what God is doing in the world. And he's so right because it's been a terrible semester. I'm only back at school for one week. It's been awful. You're right. I'll try harder. Lord, please, 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 after this weekend, I'll be so much better. And all of a sudden, our lives do this, back and forth. And because of that fundamental insecurity, spiritually speaking, we are horrible evangelists. Because we always stand on the outside of God, as it were, waiting for His disapproval. And the crazy thing is, is I don't really want to share any of that with someone else. So instead of letting that thought that Paul is saying, I found here unsearchable riches. Instead of letting that turn to guilt, like we often do, here's what I want you to do this weekend. Let it turn to curiosity. To simply say to yourself, maybe I missed something. Maybe there was something here, no matter how many times I've been to church, no matter how many times we were there every time the doors open, or I've heard all this before. Maybe there was something there that you missed that might have somehow been so awesome and cool and mind-blowing that for somebody like Paul, he could never get tired of thinking about it. And don't write that off as of saying, of course he never tired about thinking. I mean, he was religious that way. That's why he got to write the Bible less. No, he wasn't. Actually, quite the opposite. <laughs> he was going around killing people for following Jesus. If anybody had a conscience problem, it was probably this guy. <laughs> well, that's two thumbs and a conscience problem. This guy. That's not funny at all. I just want to know what he's talking about because that so rarely describes my Christian experience that I can look and say, I could look into this until the cows came home and I could never get bored with it. Is there anything like that in your life? Has there ever been a piece of music that you feel like, I can't stop listening to this, and you wear that CD out? Has there ever been a picture, a painting, that you're like, I could come and stare at this thing over and over again? Has there ever been a relationship that you've tried to purge from your mind, but you can't because of how infatuated you are with it? Because maybe those are little drops that God is saying, I'm trying to show you what it means to be fascinated by something, to have your imagination captured by something that might have its root in joy. And if that's the case, it might be something worth sharing with somebody else. Anyway, maybe this weekend could be given to just such an end. Um, Can I pray for us. Is that appropriate? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, um, Lord, we ask you for insight. We ask for your spirit. We prayed for him before because you said that if we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And we're asking for it not just because it's a religious thing to do in a retreat, but we're asking because we don't, See you the way Paul saw it, that, that there are riches in the, in the mere consideration of you, at how you're working out your plan in the universe. That if we, really got, if we really saw it, Lord, we would never get tired of thinking of it. And Lord Jesus, that is so far from my experience, and I'm guessing I'm not too terribly different like the people here in this room, So maybe because we've gathered for the sake of your glory and your word, like you say, you would give us just maybe a drop, a little glimpse of all of a sudden seeing something in you that we didn't see before, that the Apostle Paul saw, and that only your Holy Spirit can give us. So guide us into that, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.